I'm delighted to be here. Last week I was in Michigan, and so it is great to be somewhere where I don't have to have a translator while I, <laughs> while I preach. I, have, I had to have one up there. And so, at any rate, it's good to be able to be with you today. I bring you greetings from your sister institution, Southwestern Seminary, over in Cowtown in Texas. Cowtown is otherwise known as Fort Worth, Texas, uh, but we call it, uh, we call it Cowtown. And uh, so I bring you greetings from Texas. Now, uh, Texans are different. You know, I'm not a, a native Texan, but I've been in Texas since 1975. Uh, but you know how Texans are. We had a guy come and preach at Southwestern in Chapel from England. Had that beautiful British accent. And the first thing he did, he walked up and he said, I love you Texans, not for who you are, but for who you think you are. <laughs> and, and that... Pretty well sums it up, I guess, but at any rate, it's a joy to be here, too, with my good friend of many years, Dr. Mac Brunson, and I appreciate him, loved him, been able, he and I have shared pulpits together and done other things together, and uh, love and appreciate him. By the way, he and I are the same age, born in the same year, I won't tell you which year, but uh, I, I think, actually, I think he's about four or five months younger than I am. So I guess I'm the elder, but I have loved and appreciated Dr. Brunson and his commitment to the Lord and his commitment to expositional preaching and his friendship means so much to me. And frankly, I'm really glad I get to preach in front of him and not behind him. And so that's good as well. But you'll get to hear Dr. Brunson coming up here in just a minute. But before that, let's turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. And I want to do an exposition and application of the first paragraph of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, the paragraph runs through verse 4. I'll only have time to get through verse 3 today. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we will read the word of the Lord here together. Uh, I'll read it, you follow along with me, and then we'll bring an exposition and application, the Lord willing, of verses 1, 2, and 3. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, long ago. God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, He has spoken unto us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, and through whom He created, He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature and sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty, majesty on high, so He became superior to the angels, just as the name He inherited is more excellent than theirs. What Shakespeare is to playwrights, the Mississippi to rivers, and Westminster Abbey to cathedrals. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is to all of the New Testament from high atop this spiritual Mount Everest. We are able to look out over all that God is doing in His panorama of salvation from creation to consummation, and at the apex and at the center and at the hub of it all is Jesus Christ. God has spoken. God is a God who speaks. Genesis chapter 1, ten times that verb, speech, to speak. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Literally in Hebrew, exists light, and light existed. 
God speaks and things happen. God is a God who speaks. Now, have you ever stopped to consider that unless God speaks, you could never know Him? Unless God reveals Himself to you, chooses to reveal Himself and communicate to you, you could never know Him. Oh, I understand the heavens declare the glory of God, but the heavens can't tell you what Jesus was doing on the cross when He died for your sins. Oh, I understand that history teaches us about the sovereignty of God, but history uninterpreted can't explain what Jesus was doing on the cross when He died for your sins. Oh, I understand our conscience bears witness to the morality of God, but your conscience unaided cannot teach you how to live and love God and others rightly. No, all of these things, the universe, history, your own conscience, is one giant undecipherable hieroglyph until you have God's Rosetta Stone, Jesus. And that's what the author of Hebrews is introducing you and me today to. And that would be his final word. God has revealed, God has spoken his final word in one who is by his character and nature, his only son, Jesus. Speech is a vehicle of revelation. Speech is a vehicle of communication. And speech, according to Scripture, is a vehicle of salvation. It's a vehicle of revelation because it's the only way you can know God if He chooses to speak to you, if He chooses to reveal Himself, and that's exactly what He has done in Jesus Christ. God has spoken. God has revealed Himself. The inaudible has become audible. The invisible has become visible. The unknowable has now become knowable in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God spelling Himself out in language that we can understand. Jesus is the speech of eternity translated into the language of time. Speech is a vehicle of revelation, but it is also a vehicle of communication. If I want to communicate with you and you with me, God has given us the gift of language. And we can talk to one another. Hi, my name's David. Well, my name is Sue, or my name is John. Well, where do you live? Well, I live here. Well, I live over there. What do you do? And we communicate. We are able to talk. Speech is a vehicle of communication. But communication can be garbled at one of two places. It can be garbled at the source, or it can be garbled on the receiving end. One of my favorite stories of Franklin Roosevelt when he was president is how he observed in those interminably long receiving lines that inevitably presidents have to stand in. And he noticed that people would come through that line. They were so awed by being in the presence of the president of the United States that they seldom paid any attention to what he said. And so he decided to conduct an experiment one day. And as the people were coming through the line, he leaned over and mumbled the words, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And so people were coming through the line, and the president would lean over and mumble, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And to his surprise, nobody really paid any attention or heard what he said, and they would come through the line, he would mumble that, Wonderful, Mr. President. Oh, God bless you, Mr. President. We're praying for you, Mr. President. We're so proud of you, Mr. President. But apparently... When the ambassador to Bolivia, who was toward the end of the line, came through, the president leaned over and mumbled, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And the ambassador to Bolivia understood what the president said, and he leaned over and whispered in his ear, I'm sure she had it coming. <laughs> 
speech can be garbled at the source or at the receiving end. But ladies and gentlemen, when God speaks, He does not mumble. When God speaks, He does not stutter. When God speaks, He speaks with crystal clarity. And God has spoken His final word in Jesus Christ, His Son. Speech is a vehicle of communication. But speech is a vehicle of salvation. Because this one whom God has sent, namely His only Son, to provide our salvation is described in language of speech. God, the, the author of Hebrews doesn't say God sent or God revealed. No, He said God spoke in His Son. Jesus is the very logos of God, the very Word of God, the very speech of God. And not only is what Jesus says the same things that God says, but everything Jesus is and everything He does perfectly reveals God. Speech is a vehicle of salvation. And therefore God wants all people everywhere to know Him. God desires the salvation of all, 2 Peter 3, 9. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If I use the name Woody Allen, most of you will know. Some of you younger folks may not know that name. But those of you that are like me, you know, 39 and over, you'll probably, you probably know that name. Woody Allen, famous actor, producer, movie producer. Very high IQ, but also proclaims to be an atheist. A few years ago, Woody Allen was interviewed, and he was asked this question. Mr. Allen, I, I know that you don't believe in God. I, I know you're an atheist. But if there is a God, and if that God were to speak to you, what would you most want to hear him say? And Woody Allen thought for a moment, and then he responded, Well, if there is a God, and if that God should speak to me, I would most want to hear him say three words. You are forgiven. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the heart cry of every sane human being on this planet. If there is a God, and if that God should speak to me, what would you most want to hear Him say? You would most want to hear Him say those words, you are forgiven. And that's the very reason Jesus has come into this world, to provide forgiveness for all who will believe in Him. Jesus is God's speech of salvation, is exactly who He is because of Jesus. Because God has spoken His final word in one who is by His nature and character a son, there is an answer to your question. There is a solution to your problem. There is forgiveness for your sin. And there is salvation for your soul. God has spoken His final word in Jesus. But now, did you notice how the author of Hebrews begins? He talks about a continuity and yet a contrast between God's Old Testament revelation through the prophets and His New Testament revelation through His Son, Jesus. Notice the continuity that is here. Long ago, who spoke? God spoke. Where? To the fathers through the prophets, different times, different ways. But in these last days, who else spoke? <clears throat> that same God. God has spoken His final word in one who is His Son. Isn't that interesting? There is a continuity. The revelation of God in the Old Testament and the revelation of God in the New Testament. God speaking through the prophets, God speaking through His Son, far superior to the prophets. Either way, there is continuity. It is the same God who speaks. 
And yet there is contrast here. The author draws this contrast. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But notice the contrast. In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son. Long ago, these last days. To the prophets, to us. In the Son, long ago, through the prophet, or recent days, but through the prophets, long ago. There is a contrast here. And the contrast is between a prophet kind of a revelation and a son kind of revelation. I love the prophets, don't you? The Old Testament prophets. I love reading them and preaching from those prophets. Interesting, all those prophets, they come from various different backgrounds, and they all spoke with different accents, didn't they? You have the lofty eloquence of Isaiah. You have the plaintive wail of the weeping prophet Jeremiah. You have the country accent of Amos, the country prophet, who calls the women of his congregation fat cows of Bashan. Can you imagine? And then you have the schizophrenia of Jonah. And every one of those prophets, each of them, different as they can be, and yet God spoke His Word through them, but not through any one of them did God reveal all of Himself or all of His revelation. But now in these last days, the last days is a Jewish way of saying the coming of the Messiah. And so from the moment Jesus came, lived, died, rose again, and ascended to heaven, from that moment until today, we're in the last days, according to Scripture. In these last days, God has spoken. There's your main verb in the entire four verses that drives everything in the 72 Greek words that appear in this single sentence of four verses. God has spoken His final word in one who is His Son. Now look, let me show you something. Very interesting that the word son here in the Greek New Testament has no article. It doesn't say in the son. It doesn't say in his son. Actually, literally, if you just look at it in the Greek text, it says in son. Now we know that there is only one son, the one of a kind, monogenes, only begotten son of God, Jesus. That's the son he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus. But why doesn't he put an article there? Or why doesn't he... Call the, use the pronoun his, his son. Well, here's why. When an author in Greek wants to emphasize character and nature, they elide, they drop out the article. And I think there's no article in front of the word son here because the author is focusing not just on Jesus in terms of who he is, but his character and nature as one who is a son distinct from the prophet's. That's the emphasis of the author. The prophets lived and they died. Jesus lived and died and lived again. The prophets preached forgiveness. Jesus forgave. The prophets spoke the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. There's a world of difference between a prophet kind of a revelation. As wonderful as those Old Testament preachers were, there's a world of difference between a prophet kind of revelation and a son kind of revelation. God has become incarnate in His Son. He did not do that through the prophets. He spoke His Word through them. But in the Son, you have God becoming human flesh. You have the second member of the Trinity, God, taking on human flesh and becoming one of us. And God walks among us, Emmanuel, God with us. God has spoken His final Word. 
in one who is by his character and his nature so far above and superior to the prophets that he is in relationship to the Father as his only Son. God has spoken his final word. You know, when I was a child, I would occasionally do verbal battle with my parents like some of you. I see children, young people here. But I learned early on that when my mother uttered four words, that should end all dispute. And those four words were these words, that's my final word. When mom said those words, that was my mother drawing a verbal line, a verbal line in the sand. And to step over that verbal line, was to invite pain into one's young life. And so I learned that when my mother said, that's my final word, she meant it. When God says Jesus is His final word, He means it. There is no other final revelation and way of salvation apart from Jesus. Neither is there salvation in any other name under heaven except that name, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's final word. And then the author moves out and he says, Now I want to tell you seven things about Jesus. And so in this text, you have seven clauses, participial and relative clauses, all modifying the the statement God has spoken in His Son. And there are seven things that are told, we are told about the Son. I call these the seven wonders of Jesus. Now, Do you remember when we were in school and we learned the the seven wonders of the ancient world? Do you remember that? We learned about the uh, famous pyramid at Giza, the hanging gardens of Babylon, and on and on. you remember the seven wonders of the ancient world that we learned about? There was the uh, temple, there was the statue of Zeus at Olympia. There was the temple of Artemis at Ephesus. And then there was the Halicarnassus at the the Colossus of Rhodes and the mausoleum, uh, the lighthouse at Halicarnassus and then the great mausoleum and there were seven wonders of the ancient world. But if you take every one of those seven wonders and compare them to Jesus, they're nothing but belly button lint compared to the wonder of Christ as God reveals Himself to us through Him. Here are the seven wonders of Jesus. I want to tick them off quickly. Stay with me as we go. Number one, in verse two, God has spoken His final word in Jesus, whom He has appointed heir of all things. The first wonder of Jesus is God has appointed Him heir of all things. Now, what is an heir? An heir is someone who receives an inheritance. And so God has said, look, my son is going to receive it all. Everything there is in the physical universe, everything there is in the spiritual universe, in the eschaton, at the end of time, it's all coming into the lap of Jesus. He is God's heir. God has decreed that his son receives all things. By virtue of the fact that He is the Son and the Savior, He is the one who is the heir of all things, whether in the physical world or the spiritual world. He is the heir of all things. And oh, by the way, time out. Just a quick aside, quick rabbit trail. Romans 8, you know Christ. If you know Him, you're a joint heir with Christ. 
Everything God is going to put in the lap of Jesus by virtue of your connection to Jesus through salvation, all of that for all of eternity is going to be yours to share in and enjoy. You are a joint heir with Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That's the first wonder of Jesus. But the second wonder is not only is He the heir of all things, but through whom God created the universe. Now we go from the end, He's the heir of all things at the end of time. Now we go all the way back to the beginning of time, to the beginning of creation. And before there was anything, Jesus is. He is one with the Father. He is altogether unique and different from creation because He is not a part of creation. In fact, He's not a part of creation because the author of Hebrews said, it is through Jesus that God, through the agency of Jesus, God created all things. That means that Jesus is before all creation. That means He's not a created being. That means He is divine. He is a part of the Godhead. He is the one who created all things. God, through Him, created everything there is. By the way, another quick time out. That means that theistic evolution and naturalistic evolution are both false. They're both false. You didn't get here by natural evolution and biologically, nor did you get here by any form of theistic evolution. Once I was a tadpole beginning to begin, then I was a frog with my tail tucked in, then I was a monkey in a banyan tree, and now I am a professor with a Ph.D., You think that's how it works? Well, then I'll sell you some swampland here in North Carolina if you think that's how it works. No, He is the one through whom God created all things. This is the Son. Now watch it. He's the creator and He's the consummator. He's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and Omega. And by the way, He's everything in between. That's what the author is saying. So he's, it's all going into his lap at the end of time. And he's the one who started it all at the beginning of time. This is the Son, the third wonder of Jesus. Verse 3, he's the radiance of God's glory. Glory, there's a $5 stained glass word. We use that word all the time, glory. Oh, the glory of God, glory, glory this, glory that. If I were to ask you to come up here and define the word glory, how many of you could do it? Glory is the visible manifestation of one or more of the attributes that God permits you to see and know. That's what His glory is. God's glory, it's like this, as essential as light is to the sun, as blue is to the sky, and as wet is to water, glory is as essential to God. It's the essence of God. It's who God is in terms of all of His attributes that then outshines, that then the effulgence of His glory is what you see and what you know. This is who Jesus is. Look at it. He is the radiance, the outshining, like the sun radiates its light and heat. That's who Jesus is. He radiates everything that is God, everything that is divine. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus does not reveal something other than Himself, nor does He reveal something other than God. He is fully God who reveals God to us as man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. John wrote about Him in chapter 1, verses 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. 
even the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then 118, the Son has explained, He has literally in Greek exegeted God. And we now see and know His glory through Jesus Christ. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that wonderful? This is the third wonder of Jesus. The Son radiates fully, completely the glory of God Himself. The fourth wonder of Jesus. Right there in verse 3. And He's the exact expression of God's nature. Now, the author has just stated that the Son is one in terms of divine essence. But He does not want you to be confused on your Christology. And so now he makes a statement that indicates that he is a separate person from the Father. You see, Orthodox Trinitarian doctrine says that you have one God. You don't have three gods. You have one God, but who, one, one nature, but three persons. One God who reveals himself in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One nature, three persons. That's Orthodox Trinitarian doctrine. And so the Son is the exact expression of God's nature. The word there's like a stamp. If you have a stamp or a, if, uh, uh, like an old typewriter, I realize that's a bad illustration. Some of you say, a what, a what? I don't even know what an old typewriter is. But when the metal arm, when you push the button, there's the letter M, and you push that, and the image M on the metal bar strikes the paper go through the ink and the paper, and it leaves the image of the M on the paper. That's the word that's used here. Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. He is a distinct person within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but He is the exact representation of God. Now watch this. An image is made from a different substance than the original. Have you ever been to a wax museum? We've got one over in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, the mid-cities, there's a wax museum. And they got all kind of famous people in there, a lot of famous entertainers. There's Clint Eastwood. You walk over there, I mean, it looks just like Clint Eastwood. I mean, you think he, you would hear him say, a man's got to know his limitations. Or you think you would hear him say there Two kinds of people in the world, my friend, those with loaded guns and those who dig. You dig. Now, if you don't know where that's from, you've got to understand there really are two, two groups of people in the world. There are people who love Westerns, and there are people who are uneducated and ignorant. So you're, <laughs> you know, they're, you just have to determine which category you're in and figure that out. But there's old Clint, and it looks just like him. But if you walk over there and touch him, he's made of wax. He's not made of the same substance as the original Clint. But you see, this word here is saying, Jesus, yes, he's the image of God, but he's not like a typical image that's made of a different substance than the original. Oh, no. Jesus is made of the same stuff that God is made of. Jesus is fully God and fully represents God. That's the teaching of Orthodox Trinitarian theology. And that's the fourth wonder of Jesus. Look at the fifth wonder of Jesus. And Jesus sustains all things by His powerful Word. Look at that. He upholds all things. All things in the microcosm in our universe and the macrocosm 
of our universe. All things. So get out your, tele, your uh, microscope. Go ahead, get it out. Microscope, get your slide, you put it in there. And go over here and get you a drop of North Carolina pond water. And put it on that slide and focus in, and what do you see? Well, first of all, you may be aware that there are 52,000 species of microscopic protozoa. 52,000. In any drop of North Carolina pond water, there are anywhere between two and 4,000 microscopic organisms. Oh, there's Paramecium. I'd recognize him anyway, shaped like my foot there. And oh, look over there. Why, there's Rotifer. I can't miss Rotifer. He's only a 1,000 cells. He's translucent, so thin you just see right through him. And oh, look over there. Why, there's Euglena. Euglena's fascinating. You see that little dark spot? That's called an organelle. Euglena is the only one of the protozoan that can weigh food in its mouth by its little hairy cilia, but that little dark spot, Euglena can conduct photosynthesis because she has chlorophyll in her and she can function like a plant and make her own food or function like an animal and weigh food into her tiny mouth. There's no other protozoan like Euglena. Look at that, all of these thousands of different protozoan floating around in there. Who holds all that together? Who sustains the microcosm of a drop of pond water? Get out your telescope. Well, go ahead. Get, get it out. Get out your telescope and focus it on the night sky. And what do you see? Well, you see 170 billion galaxies. That's what you see. And it's unbelievable. And then over there, there's our galaxy. It's called the Milky Way. And as galaxies go, it's kind of a puny galaxy. And, and then, it only, by the way, it only has 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. And then not only that, but there's a little tiny insignificant solar system in the Milky Way. Uh, that's where we live. Third rock from the sun, by the way. There we are right there. Interesting, that solar system. Did you know the size of that solar system? If you could proportionally reduce our solar system down to a football field, the sun would be on the 50-yard line. Earth would be 93, Earth would be 93 million miles away on the 46-yard line. And Pluto would be on the goal line. Isn't that amazing? And furthermore, as our Earth, if you take a close look at her, she's rotating. In fact, she is rotating every 24-hour period at the speed of 1,000 miles per hour. Do you feel dizzy? And not only that, but as she rotates in the solar system, we're rotating around the sun at the speed of 76,000 miles an hour. And not only that, but the sun and our system is rotating as well in the universe in this Milky Way galaxy at the speed of 486,000 miles an hour. But even that's not the galactic speed limit. Light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. Who holds all of that together? There's one cosmic cop whose badge is deity and whose whistle is omnipotence. And he directs galactic traffic in the universe as planets and stars and universe whirls around. And he does it by a single word. 
That's the fifth wonder of Jesus. He holds everything together. A little microscopic drop of pond water. And all of the planets and stars in the universe and the galaxies. He sustains it. He holds it all together. Time out. Don't you reckon that if Jesus can sustain the minutiae of a microscopic protozoan, two to four thousand in a drop of North Carolina pond water, don't you think that whatever's going on in your life he can handle? And if he can sustain a universe by his powerful word, do you think he can hold your marriage together? Do you think maybe he can make sure you make it through school? Do you think maybe he can take care of your children, your parents? If he can do all of that, you reckon he can hold your life together? Just a thought, just a thought. Then I come to the sixth wonder of Jesus. And when I do, I read the sixth wonder of Jesus in verse 3, and my breath is taken away. (gasps) Because the sixth wonder of Jesus is, He made purification for sins. What? He made purification for sin. Sin? Where did that come from? Sin? Where did this rebellion against this Creator come from? Well, did it come from some of those protozoan? Did you start that? Well, I don't know. Let's ask them. How about it? How about it, Paramecium? How about it, Rotifer? How about it, Euglena? How about you 52,000 species of protozoan? And I hear them as they respond in their little microscopic, squeaky voices. Don't look at us! How about it, stars and planets in the universe? Are you the ones who brought sin into God's creation? And then their booming cosmic voices. I hear those planets... As they respond, don't look at us. Who would dare to bring sin into God's universe? Well, take a look at the one who's preaching. Take a look at those seated around you. Take a look at yourself. We are the culprits. We're the ones who brought sin into God's universe. We're the culprits. There are seven and a half billion of us now on the planet, most of whom don't know the Lord as their Savior. Seven and a half billion sinners, some saved sinners, but others unsaved sinners, which basically means that every day, every day, cascading At the feet of the throne of a holy God are the sins of seven plus billion people on this planet in one rushing, roaring, filthy, malodorous flood emptying themselves before the throne of a holy God. You would have every right to just wipe us out. He would have every right and we would fully deserve His justice if He sent us all to hell. But He doesn't. Hebrews 1, 3, 
Through this Son, the sixth wonder of Jesus is He made purification for sins. Jesus came and died on the cross and paid the penalty for the sins of all people on the planet. He suffered and died in their place as their substitute, absorbing the wrath of a holy God and His own wrath as a member of the Godhead, all that we have done against Him, yet out of His love. He makes atonement for our sins. And He removes that sin. And He forgives that sin. And He cleanses us. Look at it. He made purification for our sins. And we are clean in His sight. Such is His salvation. And then the seventh wonder of Jesus. After making purification for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When he died, they laid his body in a tomb, but three days later it was not possible that the prince of life be held by death. And he broke the bonds like rotten cotton of death. And he rose, arose from the dead. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. And then he ascended to heaven, seated himself at the right hand of God. And there, this moment, on the throne of heaven, sits the Son of God, Jesus, the seventh wonder of Jesus. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And one day the trumpet will sound, and he will return to this earth, riding upon a white horse, and make it all right. These are the seven wonders of Jesus. God has spoken His final word, and one who is by character and nature, a son. 1969, West End Elementary School in Rome, Georgia. End of the month of May, end of the school year, sixth grade class. About to have their end of the school year party. Unlike the first through the fifth graders who have their party in their room, they get a little punch and cookies in their room. No, not the sixth grade class. No, the sixth grade class gets to go across town to the roller skating rink, Rock Ridge Roller Rink, and gets to have a two-hour party where nobody else is there. The whole roller rink's ours for two hours. In 1969, sixth grade, West End Elementary School class. The class had a tradition. On the last day of school, they would elect, the class would vote, and they would elect a Mr. and Miss West End Elementary School. And then their names go on a plaque, and you can go to the school today and see all the names through the years. Mr. and Miss West End Elementary School, elected by the sixth grade class. This was in the days before middle school. You left the sixth grade where you were top dog, and you went into junior high school, seventh grade, where you were lower than scum. And you worked your way back up to a senior in high school. This was a time of transition. And so Mr. and Miss West End Elementary School were voted on by the classmates there. And it came as no surprise that Terry Littlejohn was elected Miss West End Elementary School. Oh, she was drop-dead gorgeous. I mean, she was, you know, she was Marsha Brady with brown hair. She was smart as a whip. And it just came as no surprise that Terry Littlejohn was elected Miss West End Elementary School. But it was a shock when the votes were tallied and Mr. West End Elementary School turned out to be David Allen. And the reason that was such a shock is David Allen was not the smartest guy in the class. No, that honor went to Paul Webb, who is an archaeologist now, a man, a young man who in the sen- when we were seniors in high school made a perfect score, perfect 1,600 on the SAT. 
In fact, we had two in our graduating class who did. No, nor was, nor was it, nor was I the football, baseball, sports star. No, that was Brad Mara, tall Brad Pitt before there was a Brad Pitt. And yet, it was David Allen. It was a shock. And so we loaded on the bus and we made our way to the skating rink, and everybody's having a wonderful time. And then all of a sudden, at the skating rink, the lights began to lower. And everybody exited the rink. And that multicolored crystal ball at the center of the top began to turn and the light shined on it and it shined all those multicolored dots down on the floor. And there was a tradition that Mr. and Miss West End Elementary School would hold hands and skate solo around the rink while everybody else was watching. Now, this was a tradition of which I had no knowledge, but to which I had no objection. And so I got to stand there and hold Terry Littlejohn's hand and skate out onto the floor. Now, I want you to know in 1969, we didn't, didn't have computers, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have CDs, we didn't have Nintendos, Xboxes, we didn't have anything like that, but we had Tommy James and the Shondells. Crimson and clover, over and over. And so we launched out holding her hand, and I skated with Terry Littlejohn. You don't understand, she was so far above my pay grade. And there we are skating together. Oh, it was wonderful. We got about a lap around, and she said, you know, everybody's looking at us. And suddenly, the coolest words I have ever spoken to a girl in my life came <laughs> out of my lips and I said no they're not looking at us they're looking at you <laughs> guys if you want to if you want to get her to go out with you come talk to me I'll tell you how to make that happen I know how to I know how to do that they're not looking at us they're looking at you and you know, that was the day that I got to hold her hand, skate with her. You know, I knew about Terry Littlejohn. I didn't know her personally, really, but I knew about her. I knew where she lived. They lived up behind the high school on Lyons Drive. I, I knew some things about her. But I want to tell you, it was a whole lot more fun, not just knowing stuff about her, but holding her hand and skating around that rink with her. That was a whole lot more fun. You know, it's a wonderful thing to know about God. I mean, to know that God exists, there is a God, and to know facts about Him and doctrines about Him. It's a wonderful thing to know about God. But it's a far, far more wonderful and precious thing to know that God personally through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what God has done in Hebrews and in all of the Bible when He sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might know Him. And I was a nine-year-old boy at West Rome Baptist Church in Rome, Georgia, about the fourth row on the aisle. And a Sunday night service, Jesus stepped into my aisle and He reached out His hand and He said, David, why don't you come and skate through life with me? And from that day until this, Jesus and I have been skating through life together, having more fun. It ought to be illegal to have the fun 
that a Christian has knowing God personally through Jesus Christ. God has spoken His final word in one who is by His character and nature, His Son.